0: just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Terence Siegel the show that breaks down what happened across the world this week and how we got here. On this week's episode. The ousted chairman of Nissan has fled Japan. This waiting. is the house in Beirut that Carlos Ghosn is said to have fled to. He is fighting back, writing in a statement, I have not fled justice. I have escaped injustice and political persecution. I'm innocent of all the charges that have been brought against me. But first, here's what happened in the world this week. So one of the biggest stories this week was the killing of Iran's most powerful military commander, Qassem Soleimani, by a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad. Soleimani had flown into the Baghdad airport and was picked up in a car that was soon struck by a U.S. drone. Soleimani, as I said, was the most powerful military commander in Iran, so he was an extremely visible public figure, which means that previous administrations could have targeted him but chose not to. So the question then is, what is different now that President Trump authorized this strike? They were aiming to take down uh, significant amounts of Americans that would have undoubtedly killed uh, locals too, Iraqis, Lebanese, Syrians perhaps, people all throughout the region. Uh, This was an attack that would have been at some scale. Uh, We can't talk much about the details, but suffice it to say the American people can know that uh, the decision that President Trump made to take Qasem Soleimani down saved American lives. That was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The move has prompted outrage from Iran, and at his funeral services in Baghdad, thousands of mourners chanted, death to America. Iran's supreme leader vowed severe revenge for the move, and the U.S. has now deployed an extra 3,000 troops to the region, stoking fears around the globe that this could escalate into an all-out war between U.S. and Iran this is a huge story, and I'll be coming back to it next week as things develop. Australia has been hit with deadly wildfires this week, with a disastrous start to their fire season. Since September, over 12 million acres have burned. That's an area larger than Switzerland, and 1,500 homes. Just this week alone, eight people have been confirmed dead, but dozens more are reported missing. As far as why these wildfires are so particularly destructive this year, it's a combination of record high temperatures, drought, and high winds. The government confirmed that 2019 was Australia's driest and hottest year on record. And with Australia's summer just opening, conditions are only expected to get worse. In response, the government has deployed 3,000 Army Reservists to address the situation, the largest deployment since World War II. Indonesia has also been hit with natural disasters this week with a torrential downpour on New Year's Eve causing disastrous flooding and landslides in the capital city of Jakarta. At least 60 people have been confirmed dead and almost 200,000 have been evacuated, making it the worst flooding in the region since 2007. In an effort to prevent further disastrous rainfall, Planes have been sent up to shoot salt flares into the clouds, a method called cloud seeding, to break them up before they reach the capital and cause more disastrous rainfall. And finally, in Austria on Wednesday, the main center-right party, the People's Party, led by ex-Chancellor Sebastian Kurz, agreed to a coalition government with the Environmentalist Green Party. And on Saturday, the Green Party delegates officially approved this partnership. So they will be forming a government and putting the ex-chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, back in power. This came about because the People's Party had formally formed a coalition government with the far-right party, the Freedom Party. But that coalition only lasted for about 16 months. In May, a video emerged that showed the vice chancellor the leader of the far-right Freedom Party, asking for election interference from a woman he thought was the niece of a Russian oligarch. Mm-hmm. When Mr. Kurz, the leader of the People's Party, saw this video, he said enough is enough and dissolved his government and started campaigning immediately. So in September, his party won 37.5% of the vote, And the Green Party had won 14% of the vote. So they became kind of an attractive potential partner, although a very unlikely partnership. Uh, This will be the first time that the Green Party and the People's Party form a government in Austria. And it'll be particularly tough on the minority Green Party, who disagree with the People's Party on everything from immigration policy to economic policy. On Wednesday, Mr. Kurz said, "'We succeeded in uniting the best of both worlds, it is possible to protect the climate and borders. And with that, it's time for this week's Deep Dive. So I'm really excited to talk about this story this week. It's a crazy saga. And the hero at the center of it is a man named Carlos Ghosn. Carlos Ghosn is the former chairman of the Japanese auto company Nissan. And he spent the past year either in jail or on bail awaiting a trial that was supposed to happen in 2020. But early this week, somehow, he escaped Japan where he was being heavily monitored, flew across the world, and announced on Tuesday that he had arrived in Lebanon and was basically fleeing the Japanese legal system. This was an astounding move that left Nissan shocked, the prosecutors shocked, and even Ghosn's own legal team completely confused. To understand how we got here, we have to go back quite a ways. So Carlos Ghosn was born in Brazil and he was raised in Lebanon. He moved to Beirut and he was still a toddler. Uh, It's going to be important for the later part of the story to know that he has citizenship in Brazil and Lebanon and France, so he has three passports. So Ghosn studies engineering at a school in Paris, and eventually he starts working for the massive French auto company, Reno. And when he joins Reno, the company is recovering from a disastrous merger with Volvo. It's not doing very well and Goen comes in, he cuts costs, and he really turns the company around. So in 1999, he's promoted to chief operating officer. And at this point, Reno had bought a huge stake in a fledgling Japanese auto company called Nissan. After the miracle that Carlos Goen had worked at Reno and turning the company around, they decide that you send him to Japan in his new position to try to work the same magic at Nissan. It's better always to enjoy applause before than after. (laughs) Uh, 1999, the situation was really bad in Nissan, and when you are, uh, you know, taking a responsibility for a situation which is bad, it's it's also a strength, because you don't need to explain to people that situation is bad. They know it already. They know it. (laughs) It's worth mentioning that this isn't a typical thing for a Japanese company to do. Uh, having a foreign company invest so massively in a Japanese company and more importantly having a foreign executive come in and kind of right the ship of the Japanese company not typical at all in the Japanese economy and especially in the Japanese auto industry which is kind of the crown jewel of the Japanese economy. So this just shows you how totally desperate Nissan was at the time. So Goen comes in with the task of turning Nissan around and he is hugely successful. First, he cuts jobs across the board by about 14%, so 21,000 people lose their jobs. But he also improves the product line, the stock market value of the company quadruples in a couple of years, and they even leapfrog over Honda to become the second biggest auto company in Japan, right behind Toyota. So, in 2001, he's promoted to CEO of Nissan, and that's when his reputation really takes off. There is a manga written about his life, he writes a memoir, and it becomes a bestseller, and he's even given an award by the Japanese emperor, and he's the first foreign executive to ever win this award. And in 2011, when Japan is struck by a deadly, disastrous earthquake, Gone is celebrated as helping Nissan get back on track after the disaster. This is him speaking on a promotional video that Nissan put together. I would like Nissan to be a model that shows its home country and the world how to rebuild after a massive hit. There are kind of two sides to go in story here. So on the one hand, he's this celebrated hero who has rescued Nissan from the brink of bankruptcy. But on the other hand, he is this foreign executive who is really shaking things up and kind of ruffling some feathers at Nissan. As Nissan becomes more and more successful, Gone is given properties all around the world for him to enjoy, he's making tons of money, and there's a lot of cultural tensions happening between him and the other directors at Nissan. His style of management is really different from the Japanese style, where even the biggest companies pride themselves on making big decisions by consensus so everyone is on board for every decision affecting the course of the company and Gone is coming from a much more unilateral approach to management where he's the CEO and he can make his own decisions and there were also tensions about compensation Gone always felt that he was being underpaid in comparison to other auto executives across the world and then there were things like the way that he was enjoying his wealth. <music> He's making tons and tons of money and he's you know enjoying it he's kind of flaunting it in a sense he had a really elaborate wedding in Versailles that had a Marie Antoinette theme and all these things are really contrary to a lot of Japanese values one of the most important tenets of Japanese culture is a value for modesty and humility and Gon was not really exhibiting that at all So there was a lot of tensions happening that were kind of being overlooked so long as Nissan was really, really successful. But as Nissan became less successful, as it started to flail a little bit, Goh became under closer and closer scrutiny. And then on November 19th, 2018. Welcome back. Breaking news. Um, In the past few minutes, Nissan has revealed that its chairman has been arrested after allegations of serious misconduct. Nissan accuses Carlos Ghosn of underreporting his compensation and the personal use of company assets. Nissan says it's been going on for years. That was CNN. So basically, Ghosn had arrived in Hanada International Airport. He was going through customs and immigration and he was told there was some issue with his visa. He was taken aside and led to a room with a prosecutor who told him he was under arrest and he was taken to jail. And one thing that's really interesting that's come out of this whole story is we've gotten an insight into some of the very odd quirks of the Japanese criminal justice system. There's a lot of things about it that you just wouldn't expect for a modern democracy. Gon is taken to jail and he's held for 48 hours without being charged with any crime, without being able to meet with his lawyer. And while he's there, he's being questioned and he's not allowed to have a lawyer present. So obviously that runs totally counter to, for example, the United States law, which says that defendants can't be questioned without their lawyer. And if you hold someone for 48 hours without charging them, you have to let them go. But in Japan, it is legal to hold someone for 48 hours without charging them. And at the end of those 48 hours, you can request an extension of the defendant's detainment. And that's what they did. So he was held for an additional 10 days. And then when those 10 days are up, you can just request another extension, which is what they also did. So Gon was held in total for 22 days without being charged with a crime and without being able to meet with his lawyer and he was being interrogated while he was being held. So then he's finally indicted after 22 days and he's kept in jail. And I'll get to the actual charges against him in a second. So in the end, he wound up being in jail for over 100 days because of this first arrest. Finally, they allow him to leave on his third application for bail, and he posts the equivalent of $9 million in bail, one of the largest bails in Japan's legal history, and finally, he's allowed to leave. But a month later, he's arrested once again, this time at his Tokyo apartment. His wife talked about this arrest in an interview with CNBC, and it was a pretty weird arrest. They stormed in at 5.50 in the morning on us, 20 prosecutors came into the apartment and they told Carlos, "Uh, you're arrested. And they, they made him get dressed and then they took Carlos. And I was left four hours in the apartment, and there was a moment I wanted to go to the bathroom. They, they made this woman go into the bathroom with me to watch me. With you? With me. And I went in four times, she would do a body check, and she would you know, check me, and then I wanted to take a shower. I was in my pajamas, I wanted to get dressed. She was in there in the shower, and she even handed me the towel. So for a while, Goen's back in jail, and then a few weeks later, he posts bail again, this time for about $4.3 million, and he's allowed to leave, but there are some conditions. He's not allowed to leave Japan, That's pretty typical, but he's also gonna be heavily monitored, and uh, he can't move from his place of residence in Tokyo. All right, so now I'm gonna try to explain the charges against him. They all have to do with his work at Nissan, and they're all financial crimes. So one indictment is for underreporting his compensation. So they say that there is a conspiracy between him and his aides to pay him more than what was being reported publicly and that's a crime in Japan. Uh, Another charge is called aggravated breach of trust and it basically says that Gon was trying to minimize some of his own personal losses by kind of shifting his bad investments onto Nissan's books. And then probably the most serious indictment against him is one that basically amounts to embezzlement. The prosecutors say that he siphoned off a bunch of money from Nissan uh, to the total of about $5 million to accounts personally controlled by him. There are in total four charges of various financial crimes against him, all relating to his work at Nissan. Gone has always maintained that he is totally innocent of all of these charges. And for a while, that was kind of how things stood. And then all of a sudden, there is a crazy new development this week. The ouster chairman of Nissan has fled Japan where he was awaiting trial on financial misconduct charges. Carlos Ghosn flew into Lebanon on Monday raising questions about how he avoided court-imposed restrictions on his this movements. This is the house in Beirut that Carlos Ghosn is said to have fled to. But there's no sign of him here. Just lights and the security guards outside saying he's not at home. writing Writing in a statement, I have not fled justice. I have escaped injustice and political persecution. That was CNN, DW News, and Today. So this move completely captured the attention of the international media. And the question is, how on earth did he do it? How did he escape Japan and fly halfway across the world to Lebanon? It seems like Gon was able to fly on a private business jet from Osaka to Istanbul. In Istanbul, he switched to another plane and flew to Beirut in Lebanon. The presidential minister for Lebanon says that he entered the Beirut airport legally. He had with him, according to the minister, a French passport and a Lebanese ID. And that's basically as much as been confirmed so far. But even this much creates a lot of unanswered questions, like, for example, the French passport. His legal team in Tokyo says they have all three of his passports in their possession. So he might have a second French passport somehow, but this has not been confirmed. And then the other mystery that has given rise to some really interesting theories is how did he leave his Tokyo apartment when he was under really intense monitoring? And no one knows for sure what happened, but there is a really interesting theory going around. Uh, again, this exactly is Today The past police in Japan and flew halfway around the world to Lebanon isn't exactly clear. Ghosn is not insane. Unconfirmed reports out of Lebanon suggest a Hollywood-style escape, smuggled out of a large musical instrument case after a band performed at his Tokyo home. On Thursday, Interpol issued a red notice to Lebanon, which is kind of like a wanted poster. It's not exactly as strong as an arrest warrant because it's up to the individual countries how they actually want to respond to it. But the presidential minister for Lebanon said that they don't plan to stand cross-armed at this red notice and that Lebanon is a country of law and order. So it's unclear what kind of steps Lebanese authorities are gonna take right now. And also it's worth noting that he could be in trouble in Lebanon, even though he's a beloved Lebanese citizen because he is guilty of visiting Israel, which uh, is actually illegal for Lebanese citizens to do. If that's the case though, he um, might be welcomed by France, which has basically said that they would happily take him and not extradite him, although not in those exact words. So that might be the next move for Carlos Ghosn. But right now, we don't really know. He remains an international fugitive. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Terrence Siegel. Thanks for listening, guys.